Good morning. I'm Nathan. I have the privilege of uh, serving here as one of the pastors. And I also have the privilege of preaching on this Sunday, God Bless America Sunday. And I'm not sure exactly what it is. Maybe it's the fact that I'm part of Gen X, the broken generation. But, but for me, something about... Something about the idea of God Bless America Sunday doesn't sit quite right. And I just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe it's the idea of Manifest Destiny where America was meant to march forward and take possession of all the land and that it was justifiable and inevitable. Maybe it's the fact that we live in a deeply divided country in a country that seems to be getting more and more divided. Maybe it's the fact that, that, actually this is one of the first questions that somebody asked me over in Walker Hall Auditorium when you guys were interviewing me. Somebody asked me about some very divisive political issue and said, and how would Jesus feel about that? And I'll tell you what I said then. Jesus is bigger than Republican or Democrat, red or blue. Jesus is bigger than American. And when we reduce Jesus to one or another political party, we lose some of Jesus. Maybe some of this unrest in my soul has to do with the fact that oftentimes people will say that American is synonymous with Christian, and it's not. Or maybe another piece of it is sometimes people look at as America as God's gift to the world. And it seems to me, in this, we whitewash some of our faults, some of our failings. And so I I struggle to understand a little bit about what all of this was about. And so I went to this book, this book, uh, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, to try and understand, you know, where kind of this God bless America, Jesus and America and Christianity kind of comes from. And I found this. He writes, American churches over the centuries have been incredibly robust social institutions. Tocqueville himself commented at length on Americans' religiosity. One systematic study of the history of religious observance in America estimates that the rate of formal religious adherence grew steadily from 17% in 1776 to 62% in 1980. Maybe that's part of the reason I missed it, because that's when I was born. He goes on to write, faith communities in which people worship together are arguably the single most important repository of social capital in America. The church is people, says Reverend Craig McBullen. It's not a building, it's not an institution even, it's relationships between one person and the next. Half of all associational memberships in America are church-related. Half of all personal philanthropy is religious in character. And half of all volunteering occurs in a religious context. 
He goes on to write, regular worshipers, people who say that religion is very important to them, are much more likely than other people to visit friends, to entertain at home, to attend club meetings, to be part of all sorts of groups. It is membership in religious groups that is most closely associated with forms of civic involvement like voting, jury service, community projects, talking with neighbors, and giving to charity. Reading those words, I began to understand a little bit more. God has blessed America. God has blessed America abundantly, and God has used his church, his people, to do it. Because motivated by their faith, God's people have gotten involved and made a difference in their cities and in their communities and in their nations. It has created that brotherhood that we sung about where communities are knit and woven together. Robert Putnam in his book was observing, though, the collapse of American community. And so he's writing about how that community is to be restored because he's seen over the last decades the erosion of American community. Or maybe, just maybe my struggle is a little bit more personal. Maybe it's a little bit more personal like the guy that cornered me a week ago, and I checked, he's not here this morning, <laughs> and said to me, Pastor, you need to tell us how to vote. And by which I'm sure he meant, you need to tell them how to vote like I think they should vote because I think you would vote like me. But this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that goes way back. This is a problem that in our gospel text, Jesus himself was dealing with. He had two politically aligned groups that came to him. The Pharisees, who were ardent nationalists, who were aligned completely with the Zionist movement and restoring power to Israel and Jerusalem, a, a alignment that they had chosen because it was politically and personally and financially advantageous for them. And the Herodians, who were aligned with Rome's rulership under the Herods, who had done the same thing, who had aligned themselves politically because it was beneficial to them. And so they come to Jesus, what, what appears to be the perfect question, the perfect trap for Jesus. See, it was one of those questions that at first blush, there is no right answer. If Jesus says, no, it's not legal to pay the imperial tax, the Herodians could have grabbed him, nabbed him, marched him off to Rome, and they would have executed him for treason. If he would have answered yes, by all means, pay the imperial tax. The Pharisees could have paraded him out in front of his own people and said, this Jesus who you think so highly of, he's disloyal to our nation. So Jesus asked them to bring a coin. They bring a denarius. And on that denarius is the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And in a single statement, he calls out the fat, false and idolatrous statement on that coin. He says that Caesar is Caesar and Caesar is not God. 
Go ahead and give these coins that were made by a man back to that man. But you were made by someone else. You were made by God. So give back to God what is God's. He's also calling these two groups of Jewish people to account. He's saying to them, you guys have forgotten. You have forgotten your primary identity. The primary identity that that from the very time of your birth are words that are put on your lips to your very last breath. These words, these words that we read earlier today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Those words were their creed, their identity. Those words, more than any other words, were to shape who they were. And instead, they had identified themselves primarily by a political affiliation. So he's calling them and us to account. You are made in the image of God. That is your primary identity. And that's where the rub comes for us. That's where the rub comes for us as as followers of Jesus and and Americans. Yeah, I I think that sometimes we struggle with that. Struggle with separating our identity as Americans from our identity as followers of Jesus. Those two become mixed together. And sometimes I think we forget our primary identity. You know these words all too well. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. As I hear those words, words that are near and dear to our hearts as Americans, I have to ask the question, do they line up with Scripture? Do they line up with who God says we are? Do we stand before our Creator with rights? See, here our identity as an American, our identity as a follower of Jesus, bind. See, God gives to us the privilege of bearing His identity. They're not rights but gifts freely bestowed. Our Creator graces us with life and salvation and the responsibility to care for that creation. You see, we exist as people to serve creation and to live for the good of our neighbor. See, it's not that I don't love our country. It's that sometimes our country And my identity as an American can get in the way of my identity as a follower of Jesus. Just like it happened for the Herodians and the Pharisees. And so in this simple phrase, give to God's what is God's, Jesus is calling us to remember our primary identity. So how does this play out 
my wife pushes on me uh, spiritually from time to time, and she's been reading a book. And in this book, the author says, well, what has God given you? To which, of course, the answer is, well, he's given me everything. Life, breath, all the gifts that I so enjoy, the, the gifts that we have here in this wonderful and great country, they're all from him. And so the prayer that this author challenges the reader to pray, a prayer that the author herself prayed, is anything. God, you've given me everything, so it's all yours. So anything you would ask of me, I will do. Little secret. I'm not sure that I'm ready to pray that prayer. That's a scary prayer. Because as Americans, we have our rights, our certain things, and we'll say, well, I'll do that, but I won't do this or that, because this is mine. You see, when I hear those words from the Declaration of Independence, I hear enshrinement of my sinful self of viewing myself as the most important person, and that rubs up against my faith in Jesus and following him. And finally, I think that right now in our culture, our church is needed more now than ever. The church is needed now more than ever for what it can do in our community and our society and our world. See, Robert Putnam also wrote these words that when you hear them, you will think they sound oddly prophetic. He wrote, no sector of American society will have more influence on the future state of our social capital than the electronic mass media and especially the internet. If we are to reverse the adverse trends of the last three decades in any fundamental way, the electronic entertainment and telecommunications industry must become a big part of the solution instead of a big part of the problem. So I challenge America's media moguls, journalists, and internet gurus, along with viewers like you and me, let us find ways to ensure, this is a little old book, that by 2010, Americans will spend less leisure time sitting passively alone in front of glowing screens and more time in active connection with fellow citizens. Let us foster new forms of electronic entertainment and communication that reinforce community engagement rather than forestall it. We are meant to be connected people. We are made as relational people. And the internet and electronics are breaking us apart, separating us from one another. See, in this book, he talks about two types of social capital. He talks about bonding social capital. Bonding social capital, which is exclusive, which binds together people of similar backgrounds and identities and ideologies. That, that brings a group of homogenous people closer together. And he talks about bridging social capital. The, the capital that is built that allows us to reach out to people different than ourselves and connect with people entirely unlike us. And so then he writes these words to the church. Faith 
faith-based communities remain such a crucial reservoir of social capital in America that it is hard to see how we could redress the erosion of the last several decades without a major religious contribution. It is undeniable that religion has played a major role in every period of civil, civic revival in American history. So I challenge America's clergy, lay leaders, theologians, and ordinary worshipers, let us spur on a new social responsible, socially responsible great awakening so that by 2010, Americans will be more deeply engaged than we are today in one or another spiritual community of meeting, while at the same time becoming more tolerant of the faiths and practices of other Americans. So what is that calling us to do? Bridging social capital requires that we as people transcend our professional identities, our political identities, our personal identities, to connect with people entirely unlike ourselves. Requires that we move away from how we primarily identify ourselves in the sinful fallen world and identify ourselves more closely with our creator who made us and our Savior, who is the ultimate social capital builder, who bridged the ultimate gap to bring us back to the Father. Jesus, who came from heaven and earth to connect with the people entirely different from himself. Jesus Christ bridges the gap and invites us to bridge the gap as well. To bridge the gap and connect with people that are different from us and exhibit the same kind of love and care for people different from ourselves that he did in his life. There was no one that Jesus didn't love. So he calls us to do the same. I believe that the church is the answer. The church is the answer that our world needs. The church is the answer that our city, our community, and our nation needs to restore, to rebuild, to create hope. And I believe that the name of Jesus needs to be our anthem. It needs to be our anthem because there is no greater name. There is no higher name. There is no more powerful name than the name of Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every dividing wall will fall. The name of Jesus binds us together. And so we confess, we confess our primary identity our identity given to us by our Creator, our identity given to us by our Redeemer, our identity that we're helped to live out in our daily lives by the power of the Spirit. We stand now and confess to one another, before our nation, before our God, our primary identity as expressed in words handed down from century to century, the words that Christians have been confessing for thousands of years the words of our faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed.